You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message, recorded live from our Brighton campus. So, I don't know if you guys want to turn in your Bibles. If you've got them, you don't have to, um, because I'm not reading that many verses out, but you can if you want. Oh, it's going to be on the screen. It's going to be on the screen, so don't bother turning to your your Bibles. It's fine. You can view it on the screen. Although my version might be slightly different. Um, But Acts 2, um, 42 to 47 is what we've been looking at, sort of as a church over this last month, I guess. Um, And it goes a little something like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all these all things in common. They would sell their possessions um, and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Sounds pretty epic, doesn't it? Sounds pretty awesome. Um, and that's what it looks like when it goes right, in a sense. So that's what, that's how it should look. That's how being church and being, um, in community, being Christians should look. And so this is like really early on, like really soon after the death of Jesus and everything's going swimmingly and everything's going really awesome. And then, Fast forward to 20 years later, and it's all gone wrong, basically. So in um, in 1 Corinthians 11, we have this whole passage about um, about basically breaking bread and sharing sharing communion with each other. And so you imagine we've got these people right at the beginning of of um, of Christianity, right at the birth of of this new, um, this new thing, these followers of the way, as, as they were called. Um, and 20 years down the line, it's all gone. Pete Tong, as the expression goes. Um, <laughs> well, that was, that was the safest expression I could say that came to mind quickly. So, there we go. Um, yeah, so, Basically, when the breaking of bread goes wrong, um, it's inevitable that other things go wrong too. Other things in the community go wrong. If this is something that is one of the four key elements that is, that is talked about in this passage in Acts, that they devoted themselves to, that they, like, was really, really key to who they were as Christians, then it's kind of, it's kind of inevitable that if that goes wrong, then there's a whole host of other stuff that's going wrong, too. Um, and I want to I want to say basically uh, this evening that living in community is exemplified by uh, breaking of bread. See all these things listed in in Acts two; they all go together and they all sort of fit together in that way. Um, Looking at time, I don't know whether I should read the whole passage, to be honest, because um, it's 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, which is quite a lengthy chunk of um, the Bible to read. 
in one go. Um, but I'll probably just dip into it. Um, if people have Bibles, I can't see that people have Bibles in front of them, so I don't know whether I'll... I think I'll just read it because it's going to set the tone. So, yeah. So, you could, you guys, as you're getting, as you're getting Bibles, you can open it to that point anyway, but it's, it's on the screen as well. But, um, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, I'll just read through it and then we know what we're talking about. So, now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there, are, there have to be factions among you, um, for only so will it become clear who among you are the genuine. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you in this matter? I do not commend you. Um, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. It's pretty lengthy, but it's cool, because we get to like just frame our thoughts a bit. Which is good. So, Paul, who writes this letter in around um, AD 51, he is not talking about having um, a little cracker and a little shot of wine. It's more intimate and it's more sort of, it's more like a proper meal. It's more like a full meal. That's, that's sort of clearly what's going on here. And the the Corinthians, they would, as, well, all sort of early church sort of meals like this, they would call them love feasts, and they would they would be sort of supposed to be something where the the community can come together, they can sort of feed with each other. Sounds like an animal documentary. Um, but. You know they could they could they could feast on on various sorts of food and enjoy themselves and and basically be like a family be like an exten- a big extended family which was really cool but we see that stuff had gone wrong there's these there's there's various divisions going on and we shouldn't be too 
um, surprised if we look into the context of, of um, Corinth in the first century. See, there's a difference between the love feast and the sort of meals that people would have in what we call what sociologists call voluntary associations. So, a church would be classed as a voluntary association because you join it voluntarily. That's basically all it means. Um, so, you see, these places, these groups that that took all sorts of various forms. They weren't just. It wasn't just like. Churches were the only places where people met together and had community meals. It was quite a common thing. Like quite a lot of people would meet together um, in whatever association they were part of and have a meal together. And that would be part of their, just their life, really. Um, so these divisions and um, sort of are the result of various jealousies and rivalries over various positions of honour within the group, so positions of status within within said group. So you might um, look for a position, you might be concerned about um, the, the place where you're sitting on the table, your portion size, the quality of food and wine um, that was being given to you, um, but by sort of allowing these divisions that were not very natural, very culturally um, normal, but by allowing these um, divisions, the believers sort of who supplied the houses to meet in and gathering um, and the food to eat were dishonoring those who didn't have anything. You know, Paul says, um, do you show, in verse 22, do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So essentially, that's that's what they're doing by by keeping up this cultural norm of saying I'm gonna I'm gonna search for like the most high honourable place in this in this meeting and I'm I'm gonna get there early and I'm gonna gonna sit in a high up seat and I'm gonna make sure that I am like sort of this well known person and and all that sort of stuff that's going on. So there's these clear links between the Greco Roman meal practice and the meal practice as evidence in, in this passage. The requirements, though, for the Lord's Supper are entirely different. You see, very quickly, something that was supposed to be for everyone, this love feast, ended up being something that was for the, um, the top end of the, of the group. Those who, um, those who would call themselves the genuine, those who would call themselves um, approved by the people, the honourable ones, like the important ones. So, in verse 19, we have this we have this word um, factions. There's various factions, but we're, we're better off um, from from the Greek rendering this word as just discrimination. Because that's what's really going on here. It's not so much that, that there are sort of different groups fighting for, for rivalry. There's the group that have and there's the group that don't have. And there's discrimination on the part of the, the group that have against those that don't. If that makes sense. The genuine is, is best understood as the upwardly mobile. The, the elite, the, 
Um, it's like their own term. It's their own technical term to describe themselves. We are the important ones, and they are the, the less important ones. So we should be the ones who arrive early and eat all the food and enjoy the company of each other because why would we want to associate with those people? They might believe the same thing that we do, but why would we want to associate with them? That's essentially what's going on. And it's, it's common in the ancient world basically to mean approved by the people. So I guess if we're looking at um, verse 19, we could re-imagine it in terms of the following sort of phrase. I hear there are divisions among you. And why do I say this? Because you practice discrimination in favor of those approved by the people, with the result that it's no longer the Lord's Supper that you eat at all. See, basically, it's discrimination between those who have and those who don't have. So, what we've got going on, I've mentioned this word honor um, briefly before, and I've mentioned it in the past when I've spoken as well. But what's going on in the church is that there's this system of honor that's been turned upside down, it's been turned on its head in church. That's, that's what's supposed to happen. See, those approved by the people is a normal state for voluntary associations in the Roman Empire. That's kind of normal. But this, the church, is God's empire. The church is supposed to be the incarnation of the kingdom of God. So if that's the case, then the system by which we are approved by the people should be turned on its head. And it should be a system by which we're approved by God. See, symbolically... Honour represents this person's rightful place in society. It's the value of a person in, in their own eyes and in the eyes of the group. It serves as like a rating, a social rating, which gives you certain entitlements to interact with, with people in certain ways. So to interact with your superiors in a certain way, to interact with people on the same um, honorific level as you and people who are your subordinates. You get, there's like a... Uh, what would the word be? Hierarchy, yes. Um, of like, of like social interaction and everything is all sort of like encapsulated in this thing of honour. Who's the most honourable? Who's got like the best seat? Who's got the best food? Who's got the best meal? It's all sort of going on there. And so, also the the um, the Corinthian meal doesn't appear independent of society. There's this banqueting tradition at virtually every social level. Social status differences could be clearly noted at communal meals and as such they provided an important arena uh, for showing and comparing honour, for saying I'm the most honourable, I'm the best, you're less good than me. Um, all this stuff is going on. But you, you kind of think, well, is there somewhere in the Bible where Paul maybe talks against that and I'm sort of guided towards bits where he says well there's no there's neither Jew nor Greek when you come into church there's not slave or free anymore the whole book of, um, of Philemon is going on about the whole interaction between a slave and, and his owner and what that should look like in church and how that how that's different now that they adhere to this message of the kingdom of God 
you know, there's there's no longer these social differences between male and female anymore. They there are certain gender differences, but the social um, differences aren't something that that hold in church anymore. So there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. And further, what I'm suggesting in this passage is that, that Paul's saying there's no, there shouldn't be the haves versus the have-nots. There shouldn't be the the rich versus the poor. There's no honour in being approved by the people. There shouldn't be the the important ones and the less important ones. Because in church, the first become last and the last become first. That's what happens in the kingdom of God. So that's what should be happening in our community. That should be what what be that what should be happening in our church. The whole system gets turned on its head and the honour system gets flipped upside down. But there's more going on um, in Roman Corinth than just people vying for positions of honour. Because we've got these two groups, there's one group being discriminatory against the other group, but they're called those who have and those who don't have. So when we look into what was going on with those who don't have, like how much did they not have? Because I don't know about you, when I was learning about the sort of Roman Empire and all that stuff was going, like learning all, everything in history at school and you always, you always focus on the elite, on those, on the emperors, on those who built all the great houses, built the aqueducts, built the roads, all the stuff that was commissioned by very, very top few. And if we view the, the Roman Empire through the lens of the successful, that's like taking the rich list and analysing it and saying that the lives of those on the rich list are a cross-section of society. I mean, we know... Um, Last, I think it was last year or maybe the year before, Oxfam did a study that suggested that the um, the richest 84 people in the world own more wealth than the poorest 3.5 billion. Like that's a stat that I struggle to just get my head around. Like how big that discrepancy is. It would be like taking those 84 people in maybe 2,000 years' time saying, well, we have loads of information about them, so let's let's sort of like dissect their lives, see what was going on, and make a model to describe the lives of people in the 21st century. That would be a really weird thing to do, because it just wouldn't work. Like, I don't know what it's like to have billions of pounds and how I would spend my money if that was the case. And I'm sure most of us don't sort of... Like, how would we spend, how would we live, what, what would be the things that we enjoyed, what would be the things that we didn't enjoy. Like, it just doesn't relate. So, what people have done um, in the study of, like, the ancient world is they've come up with scales of, like, the economy and scales of poverty. So, I have one, um, which I will just, just use to give us an example of, of, um, what life was like for those who have not, those poor. Um, the top, it's sort of split up into seven sections. So if you imagine like seven sections in a list all the way down, the top three represent 3% of the population and they are the elite. So that's three sections out of seven 
represent just three percent, and they are the top. They are the top earners. They're the people that we know lots about. But the other ninety-seven percent, we know a bit less about. And so they've been split up in various ways. They've been not, those with moderate surplus. They reckon is about seventeen percent of the population. Those who were around about the level to sustain life, maybe slightly above, maybe slightly below, depending on various economic factors, various sort of like how the weather was, how the harvest was that year. You can put around 12%. And those of you doing the maths in your head will realize that there's 68% of people who were either just on the edges of that point of being able to sustain life and being able to live from one day to the next, and below that level. So they say there's about 40% at subsistence level, at the level that was sort of able to sustain life. It says here that they were um, often below the minimum level to sustain life. And then a further 28%, just completely below the level to sustain life. So the, the reason that I point that out is that because when we, if we were to impose um, this idea of general prosperity across the Roman Empire, then we get stuck in this system of like the haves versus the have-nots, oh, and like oh, everyone should just go and eat at home. No one should be really too bothered, like um, whether they whether they get to share in this meal because it's it's about coming to sort of remember God remember what Jesus' sacrifice was and, you know, like maybe maybe what was going on in Corinth wasn't that bad, maybe actually they should have included people maybe they should have just waited later till everyone could get there and then give them a bit of bread and wine so they could join in the celebration um, maybe they should have just bought more bread and wine because then everyone could have a, be have a piece when, when they arrived to the meeting but the, the actual situation is that that 68% of the people who were there, who were there in the meeting, who were there in the, in the congregation, had essentially no other means of being able to feed themselves. They were the, they were the people who did not have. See, if you're in the lower two categories, you had barely enough to survive, and in many cases, you didn't have enough to survive. You had less, less sort of um, security than a slave. And poverty for these people was absolute and abject. There was no welfare, there was nothing to rely upon. There was just the generosity of strangers and perhaps the church family. And the point is here that the church family was, was failing them quite dramatically, even to the point of um, weakness, sickness and death. See, a minority in the church had the kind of resources to put on an event where they could feed people. And a majority was struggling just to make ends meet. On top of that, without going too much into, into details, there was also a famine going on in, at the time, which would have pushed up like grain prices due to supply and demand and that sort of thing. But basically, they reckon that the price of grain would have gone up by 12 times its original price. So if you imagine you're right on the, the bread line, if all of a sudden bread costs like 12 times as much as it normally does, then you're going to be struggling a little bit. So there's all these sort of like factors 
that are, that are bound up in this, in this little passage about Paul saying, when you come together, like, wait for one another, share with one another, like, don't just eat all the food, because some people might come and they're gonna die. Some people might get sick. Some people might be the kind of person who is working a day labour in the field and they, they get an illness and they have to spend their money on, on a doctor. And so for that day they can't eat. But then their illness goes on. So for the next day they've got no money to spend on a doctor and they, they can't go back to work. And the church family are not doing what the church family is supposed to do in caring for that individual. They're not being like the Acts 2 church that's, that's selling their possessions and giving it to the people as they have need. They're not breaking bread with each other. That has just gone by the wayside and they, they, they're sticking with the cultural norm of their society at the time. I mean, how much do we stick to cultural norms when actually God's calling us to break down those particular barriers and to, to not do X, Y, and Z the way that it's done in the world, the way that it's done in society, but to break down those barriers and to say that actually when you come through these doors, when you come into church, you, you come into a representation of the kingdom of God. You're coming into a place where it's... It's different, and it's representing the sacrifice of Christ. And so that calls me into sacrifice. That calls me into a self-sacrificial act. There's, there's this whole thing about, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on, and probably would if you gave me the chance about this. Um, and if anyone wants any further reading, you can come and see me and I can give you all sorts of stuff. Um, but there's just, I want to make one brief little point about the, their homes, their homes that they had to share in. There's a couple of mentions that Paul, that Paul says about, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Um, and then he says later on, if, if you are hungry, eat at home. And so those are slightly disconnected in, in the course of the way that the argument's going. But actually, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to to reconcile that if Paul is talking to those who have homes, those who have the the haves, the approved by the people group. Because if one goes hungry and another becomes drunk, then they the ones who are hungry they don't have homes to eat and drink in. So if you're saying if anyone's hungry, let him eat at, at home. Perhaps they don't have a home. So perhaps that's, perhaps that kind of cynical. Is that kind of cynical? I don't know. But what they're doing, they're eating their own supper. They're not eating a shared supper. One's going ahead and devouring his own supper. And it's divisive. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I mean, there's this, this is not just about going home and having your own meal. Because what they're doing is they're having, they're supposed to be having the Lord's Supper, which means a shared, um, meal. It means something in recognition of, of Christ's self-sacrificial act. Paul says, um, to the genuine, are there not homes specifically for the communities eating and drinking? Or is it that the, these self-proclaimed genuine, is it that, 
the, those that think they're better than everyone else. Despise the church and shame those who, who don't even have food, nor homes. There's food to be shared and eating their own supper. By eating their own supper, these so-called genuine are despising the ones who have nothing. Paul's response is not to say, hey, if you're hungry, eat before you arrive so that those who don't have any food don't really know that you've already eaten. So that little bit of bread that you give them, they think that that's all you're having to. That's not what's going on here. Paul's, Paul's response is to bring the sacrifice of Jesus into full view. It's to bring Jesus at the center of the meal, as the host of this meal. And to say that those who have something ought to be sharing it with those who have nothing. It's to say that when you open up your homes and say that this is the Lord's Supper, this we do in remembrance of, of him, actually looks like we're doing something in remembrance of him. It actually looks like something that's sacrificial, that's something that costs us something. It's something that that is done in response to the sacrifice that Christ made for us. It's not paying lip service to some introspective notion of personal salvation, but it's practically working out the love and compassion of God in participation and in sacrifice. I mean, that's the point that we say, Jesus gave everything for me, so the least I can do is, is give you a bit of bread so that you don't die. I mean, that's, that's the conversation that Paul's having here. He's saying, Jesus did everything for you. Look at, look at what Jesus did when he took bread and said, this is my body that I'm sacrificing for you. This is my blood that I shed for you. And you despise the poor. And you don't give the food out to the people who need it. You don't share with the people who are in need. See, the Corinthians weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't living like the, the church in Acts 2. And we, so often, don't do what we're supposed to. I mean, I, I guess we can all point to times in our lives where we're guilty of God sort of like pressing on our case and saying, you know, you should be doing something for this person here. This person needs your help. He needs a helping hand. And, and you're not, you know, you need to be doing something. Maybe the solution that we pray for is sometimes in our hands already. Maybe that's the solution that we seek for people is sometimes the solution that we already have. I don't know. And so I'm going to come back. Um, I'm going to come back to these words of institution, as they're called in my Bible, um, where we sort of break bread and, and share communion with each other. But I just want to say a couple more things. around really this, this idea of homes being for sharing. And I want us to exemplify our, or I want us to imagine our meeting here as the home for sharing. And I want our community to reimagine the way that we do um, life together and we do these meetings together in view of Jesus' sacrificial act. And I want us to reimagine the way that we think about the the food that we eat, the sharing of the community and how that permeates sort of out from our lives and in in this community here and permeates out into 
the wider area of Kemptown and into Brighton around us. See, we're not dealing with, in this passage, we're not dealing with some having more than others. This discrimination is absolute. It's total. The, the, some have meals and others have nothing. Some have homes to host a meal in, others uh, have nothing. If one goes hungry whilst another is drunk, surely a call, the call is to feed the hungry, to share with one another. See, I think that the hungry are called to eat in the house, to eat in the church, in both verse 22 and 34. If the hungry are those who do not have, the have-nots, it would be difficult to sustain an argument where we suggest that they should eat at home, especially if they don't have a home. You know, given, given their situation with the poverty that they're in, given the famine, um, given that they have no homes and they don't have any food, how are they going to eat, eat at home if they're the hungry, if they, the ones that Paul's talking about? Further, if the haves, if those approved by the people are being told to eat at home, then it, it sort of takes a cynical, sarcastic nature, this, this thing Paul's saying. You eat at home and don't really let anyone else know that you've eaten already. But come and just share, sort of like, share, share a little bit of a cracker and a, and a bit of juice with each other. That's not really what's going on. Paul's expression of concern was, was for the haves that there would be particularly, um, particular disregard for the instance of hunger in one of in verse 21 where Paul refers to the have-nots. See, we should be interpreting verse, verses 21 and verse 34 consistently. In that sense, Paul is speaking up as one of the um, have-nots. He's, he's engaging with those who don't have anything. He's saying, I'm becoming like one of these people who has nothing and I'm pleading with the people who are calling themselves the genuine who are the, um, those approved by the people. And I'm saying, show hospitality to us. Show kindness. Share with us. Show yourselves as genuine, not because you're approved by the people, but because you're approved by God. And God sacrificed his son. So the least you can do is share with each other. I guess that's what I... That's what I see going on in this passage. That's what I sort of really want to bring out. You know, I, I want our meals, our shared sort of, I know it's only a little bit of a snack, but I want it to look like the community in Acts 2 and not like the community in Corinth. I want the, um, the look of this room to, to truly represent what's going on in our society what's going on in the places around us, that we don't appear like those who who are the haves. We don't appear like those who are sort of like self-proclaimed, approved by the people, the, the top, the most honourable, but that we appear like a diverse community, that there's unity in the diversity, that when you tr- truly when you come through these doors, there's, there's not Jew or Greek, there's not slave or free, there's not male or female, there's not gay or straight, there's not rich or poor, there's not those who have and those who don't have, but there's a community that have been called out by God 
to serve each other, to live interdependent lives, to live lives that are truly connected and truly um, in view of his mercy, in view of his grace. So what we're going to do in response is I want us to share with each other and I don't have a full meal here, um, although if I was to eat it all, it probably would be like an awesome meal. But for, for all of us, it's not a full meal. It's, it's symbolic in that sense. It's symbolic of, of what I wanted to share with you, you guys, um, about how we share with each other, how there is unity, how there is community. See, this table is a symbol of community working correctly in honor the Lord and not in honour of the honourable. Jesus' self-sacrificial act calls us to self-sacrifice in view of the body and that is in view of the collective body. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, I think it's 17, I'll just check. Yeah, it says this, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. In view of the body is in view of the collective whole, in view of who we are, in view of what Christ has done for us and how we have been drawn together. So I want us to rethink, reimagine communion in, in that sense. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read through these, um, words of institution again, um, and I'm gonna share the bread around and cups and wine, not wine, grape juice. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna pass it around to each other. We're gonna share with each other. We're gonna remember that we are a community, that we are called to love each other. We're gonna remember that these divisions, these, these discriminations that are, that are in place all around us outside of the, of the church, they don't matter in the kingdom of God. There's a difference in the kingdom of God, and that actually we are called to to be one di- to be one body. That there's that there's unity in diversity, and that there's there's a wholeness in the fact that we are different. That we are different people, and we are we our societal levels might be different to others. You know, this is a strange group in the nicest possible sense. Like, most places we probably all wouldn't hang out together. It's not like the done thing, it's not like the normal thing. But we've been drawn together through Christ's self-sacrificial act. And so that's what we do when we remember in communion, is we remember, we put Christ at the centre of the meal, and it affects our relationships with each other. That's what was happening in, in the breaking of bread in Acts 2. That's why they devoted themselves to it. Um, and that's what Paul was trying to correct here in, in Corinth as well. So I'm just going to break the bread and I guess pass it round and just take like a massive chunk. Because <laughs> there's loads. There's only a pound as well. I'm not going to say where, I'm not going to say where I got it from. It's like really good value. If there's any left, I'll take it home. Um, and so, yeah, so I'll, I'll take the, uh, I'll pass the bread round. Tyler, if you can do that. Share with one another. Take a bit, pass it to someone else, take a massive chunk and give a little bit to other people. And 
I'm going to do the same with the, the cups and the, the grape juice. Um, I don't know if you want to take some cups and pass them around. You want to take some cups and pass them around. And the grape juice is coming and you guys can just like pour some in for yourselves or pour some in for the person sitting next to you. Share with each other. Um, enjoy the, enjoy the community aspect of, of this as, as a meal. We've got, we've got 15 minutes before we have to finish. And we can finish early. We can do a song. It's all good. But we can, but we can sit and we can share and we can discuss life together. We can take this time to say that we're a community. To say that we are the people of God. So let me just, let me just close by reading these, these, uh, verses in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So let's do that. Let's eat the bread and drink the, the cup and share with one another. And I guess if you've had a bit, you can have more. It's all good. It's fine. You can have a bit more bread. That's all good. Um, I, and I'm just going to close, I'm just going to close in prayer. And maybe, should we do another song? We'll do, we'll do another song and share with each other. Don't, don't let your life be one that is, that is just the same and just not engaging with people in this community outside of, of it or don't be the person who comes in and sits on his own all the time. I just want to say that to me as much as anyone else because you know, I sometimes will just come and sit on my own. You know, be the person who recognizes that in view of Christ's self-sacrificial act, we, we need to be sacrificing stuff. We need to be giving our lives for each other. We need to be sharing with each other. We need to be community. We need to be something deeper than, than just me and my relationship with God. It's a shared relationship. It's a community. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church passionately loving God and people in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.